0: I'm an extraterrestrial from the planet Vulcan.
1: Okay, that was a uh, pretty memorable scene from the movie Back to the Future. And I didn't even realize, in fact, until uh, I was reading today at a journal of that, uh, that that guitar riff that Marty McFly used to, to scare his uh, future dad was an Eddie Van Halen riff. And, of course, uh, Van Halen fans, music fans, uh, are mourning the loss of Eddie Van Halen. We got the news yesterday that he had passed away after a bout with cancer at the age of 65. No question that, I mean, not just was Van Halen an incredibly successful and influential band. Eddie Van Halen, probably one of the, the most influential and just frankly one of the best guitarists, rock guitarists of all time. So his, his influence is, is certainly going to be uh, lasting, and, and, and really, I, I think it already is. Joining us to talk a bit more about uh, the passing of Eddie Van Halen and uh, his uh, impact, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Alan Cross, a music writer, historian, broadcaster at JournalOfMusicalThings.com, also the podcast, The Ongoing History of New Music. Alan, thanks so much for joining us here today. Welcome to the program.
0: Oh, you're welcome. I wish we could talk about things other than people dying.
1: I know. And, and uh, yeah, unfortunately, this year's given us too much of that. Um, and, and, you know, the thing with Eddie Van Halen, I think fans were sort of bracing for the news. I mean, people knew he, he was not well, that he'd been battling cancer, but it's, you know, it, it doesn't make it any easier.
0: Well, he'd been battling cancer for 10 years. And we had always been told that oh, the end is nigh, his death is imminent. And that had been going on for the past two or three years. But every time it seemed very, very serious. He would show up in public at a car dealership or at a restaurant or at a concert, and he looked fine. Now, we knew that he was going back and forth to Germany for some specialized treatments for his tongue and throat cancer. But again, you know, you'd see pictures of him, and he had that big, goofy, beatific smile on his face. And and you'd think, okay, well, well, maybe these are just, you know, scaremonger tactics. People are just trying to, to freak us out. So when he did die yesterday, it did come as a bit of a surprise because, well, apparently he had some gastrointestinal issues earlier this year, which set him back. He was on a very big course of chemo, but then something happened in the last week or so, and he went downhill very fast and then ultimately died yesterday. So um, cancer can be like that. It can you know You can live with it, live with it, live with it, and then all of a sudden, bam, it decides that your time is here.
1: Yeah, and it's interesting because he was a heavy smoker, and I think everyone's kind of pointing to that. But uh, as you well, read it, yeah, he, in your piece, he, he had another explanation for it.
0: Well, he had two explanations. The smoking was a bad one because he started smoking at 12. Right. Um, and the other thing was that, remember how Eddie played. He would often take two hands and play on the fretboard. There's a technique called tapping. And if you're tapping, you can't have a pick. So what he would do is he would slip the pick into his mouth, hold it there until he was finished his solo, retrieve the pick, and go on playing. He thinks that after doing this for years and years and years, the metal of these picks leached out into his tongue and resulted in the, in the malignancy. Maybe, maybe not, but where the, where the case was, he did have an operation to remove one-third of his tongue because it was cancerous and then it spread to his throat which is where we ended up with uh, over the last 5 years and then uh, apparently over the last 2 weeks or so maybe a little bit longer it spread to his brain and then when that happens you know there's nothing you can do yeah and
1: when you talk about his technique and and he was really revolutionary in 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 the way he approached the guitar and and you know he even had patents uh you know for for how to play the guitar and, and some of his innovations that he came up with. So it wasn't just that he was really good, that he kind of changed the way guitar was played, didn't he?
0: Well, he did, because um, when that first Van Halen album came out in 1978, we were still with the old guitar gods, and they weren't all that old back then, but we had Eric Clapton and Jeff Beck and Jimmy Page and Jimi Hendrix, and they were all great, but they were of a, of a different era They were from the 60s, and if you were a teenager growing up in the 1970s, they were, you know, a little, you you appreciated what they were doing, but they were a bit old for you. And along comes this kid from Pasadena with a guitar sound that was so much different than anything that the previous generation of guitar guys had been giving us that we we couldn't quite believe it. And part of that, well, a lot of it had to do with the way Eddie experimented with his guitar, Everybody knows the black and white guitar, or the red and white guitar that he has, uh, which isn't a a specific guitar. He built that out of of bits and pieces of other guitars. And he was always experimenting with it to try and get different sounds out of it. Then, he, uh, after a while, when he could afford amplifiers, he started messing with the amplifiers and trying to figure out how to get them to make weird sounds. And he was one of these guys who always was playing. He always had a guitar in his hand or within arm's reach. And, uh, you know, as, as, as he continued to experiment and fiddle and tweak, he developed a style and he developed these sounds that no one else could duplicate simply because I don't even know if he knew how the sounds were coming out because he had, you know, he had, he had lobotomized his gear so
1: much. And, and even just, you know, the platform for his, his sound and his approach, right? The, even just the idea, the concept of the guitar solo, right? And, and he played a big role in that.
0: Well, there were guitar solos going, you know, that's, that's a time-honored blues thing.
1: But what he did was he was the first guy that I can think
0: of that didn't come from a blues tradition. I mean, if you listen to Jimmy Page, you listen to Keith Richards, you listen to Jeff Beck and Clappen, they were all blues fans. And that informed the way they played. You could hear it in their style. With any, with it was different. There was, I don't know what he was... What he was, was drawing from, but he was not a blues rock player. He was something completely different, and this is another thing that set him apart from so many people. And that, that manifested itself in the solos that he played. Those weren't blues solos. Those were you know something completely different, especially when we get into this business of tapping where he's using two hands on the fretboard.
1: Yeah, and you also, I mean, you write about his, his songwriting ability, which maybe gets overshadowed by his guitar-playing ability, but just the longevity of the band, and, and to come along with 1984, and, you know, you talk about adding the synthesizers and, and a more kind of popish sort of 80s sound with, with songs like Jump, but the band never lost any any edge or any credibility, right? I mean, obviously, I think they expanded their fan base, but did they stay true to who they were?
0: I think they did. Now, when, I remember when the 1984 album came out, I was working... At a radio station in uh, brandon, Manitoba, and uh, the, the record comes out and it 's like on, uh, it came out on july first sorry january first one thousand nine hundred and eighty four which is you know a day that you don 't release anything, uh, but they had the entire chart from themselves. so this this record comes out you put it on side one track one because we really had 't gotten into CDs by this point yet, and you hear these synthesizers and the synthesizer line and remember. In the early 80s, the world was awash in synthesizers and techno-pop bands. And there was a real fear that this futuristic approach to music was going to mean the end of the electric guitar. So you put on the Van Halen record. And of course, Van-, Van Halen is one band that you could always reliably uh, you know, uh, expect to have some guitar music from. What's the first thing you hear? Synthesizer. So that was a bit freaky. But it was very much a, um, a, a pop song with rock leanings. But Van Halen had done stuff like that before. I mean, let's go back to a song like Dance the Night Away. I mean, that's a, that's a pop song from the second album. Um, but we, you know, we were a little, little apprehensive when we first heard Jump. But then, of course, it became this giant hit. The video was all over MTV. It became all over Much Music when it signed on later that year. And uh, if you go deeper into the album, there's songs like I'll Wait and Panama and a few others. So it was, everything was fine. It just scared us a bit.
1: And, of course, it was around the time when he uh, worked with Michael Jackson. He did the guitar on Beat It and and really influenced that song in a big way. And there were folks who were lining up, right, begging for the chance to to work with this guy.
0: Everybody realized that he was a virtuoso guitar player. There is a story that he, when he was asked to do the solo on Beat It, that uh, he convinced, I guess, Michael Jackson and Quincy Jones to do a slight rearrangement of the song to make it sound better. Uh, I remember listening to somebody on the radio in Winnipeg. And they said, okay, I'm going to play you this song. I'm not going to tell you who it is. I don't want you to have any preconceptions. Just listen to the song. And then we can judge it on its merits. And he plays Beat It without telling us it's Michael Jackson. And come back, and yeah, you know, that was Michael Jackson. And it's Steve Lukather, Toto, playing guitar on, on part of it. And the solo? Guess who the solo is? And everyone, oh, Eddie Vedder. Okay. Or Eddie, uh, Eddie Van Halen. Who else could it be? Because he had that style. Um, he was one of those very few guitarists who when you heard what he was playing, uh, or heard, heard him playing, you knew it was him. I mean, you go back to the clip in Back to the Future. Uh, uh, you just listen to that, and without even being told that it's Eddie Van Halen, you know. Well,
1: you got a great write-up. It's at uh, thejournalofmusicalthings.com. Alan, appreciate it as always. Thanks for making some time for us here today.
0: You're very welcome.
1: Take care. That is Alan Cross, a music writer, broadcaster, historian, a podcaster as well. The Ongoing History of New Music, uh, his website at journalofmusicalthings.com. And has mentioned, great write-up on um, you know, Eddie Van Halen and his influence, his impact, and uh, some links to some other great pieces as well. Uh, according to uh, guitarworlds.com, their 100 greatest guitarists of all time, they have Eddie Van Halen at four. After Jimmy Page, Jimi Hendrix, and Brian May. And that's pretty heady company. But in terms of, you know, influence and changing the way the instruments played, you know, I think Jimi Hendrix is certainly seen as as that. And I think, you know, in a lot of ways, Eddie Van Halen was that too. Obviously, I mean, the band Van Halen, right? there's always the debate David Lee Roth versus Sammy Hager and, you know, who was better and, you know, Van Halen fans have their favorite. But, but at its core, there's no Van Halen without Eddie Van Halen. And that's, uh, that's quite an impact, quite a career he had. And a big loss, for sure. All right, 403-974-8255 is our number here, 974-TALK. Back with more right after this.
0: Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.